0: Welcome, everybody, to the Rodden Air American Institute. Former welcome on a cold November day. Um, this indeed is a wonderful occasion, one to which I know many of us have looked with special, uh, special excitement. We have two st- speakers of enormous distinction. Um, I gave them a demanding and possibly demanding brief, which was to draw lessons from their own professional academic lives about the American economy uh, its (coughs) dynamics and direction. And I know that we look forward in order to hearing what Avner and Barry have to say. Avner, of course, we welcome back to the RAI. Avner has often been here to seminars and conferences in the past. And many of us are, will be familiar with his most recent book, The Challenge of Affluence, a title which might, I, su- I suspect, we slightly differently were it to have been published two or three years later, uh, into the continuing crisis. But Avner brings to that book really quite remarkable intellectual power and insight. Just thinks, as many of us will know, the, through the tension between the flow of new rewards and our capacity or otherwise to enjoy them. Um, I should say that I have no doubt that the flow of new rewards this evening will not undermine our capacity to enjoy the discussion that will follow the presentation. So we welcome Abner back uh, and welcome, I think, for his first visit here, um, Barry Sopper. Barry has combined a life of huge intellectual distinction, <coughs> ranging far and wide. Uh, his early work in the 17th century on English, uh, in the English economy, studies of central European economic development. There's even a book on the silk industry. I confess I had not known the book on the silk industry, but I do now. We had known, and I had certainly known, the history of the British coal industry, that large, magnificent study on the Royal Exchange Assurance, and a book which is certainly one of the most fond on my shelves, the state and economic knowledge, and Barry has combined that life of academic distinction with a life of quite formidable administrative uh, leadership. As uh, Pro-Vice Chancellor at Sussex University, uh, then as Reader in Economic History at Oxford, then as Chair the Chair of Cambridge. Master of St Catharine's College, Cambridge, and finally, <coughs> a post which he discharged with great distinction, leading the legal Trust. But there's another dimension of Barry which connects him and me, which is that he is also a formidable tutor, formidable in every sense. Um, uh, I took those occasions with me. <laughs> Utmost no seriousness, I speak from personal experience, but um, we have remained good friends ever since, and my debt to him is unlimited. and It's a special pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon. Barry, I think you are going to take the first slot since so that yeah. was Adler's decision.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, okay, thanks. I just have to. Uh, amend something in my uh, timer here, because I'm under strict instructions to keep to I, I think it was 20 minutes, but uh, <laughs> <Justing> <laughs> Let's keep it vague, yes <laughs> Okay, well thanks very much indeed, for kind, and uh, uh, not entirely truthful words, but uh, uh, as Jack Benny once said, when the cookies come round, that's the time I take know <laughs> And since uh, 2000, the year 2000, the average annual rate of growth in the United States has been about <coughs> 1.5%, which is less than half that of the post-war, the great post-war period, 1950s and 1960s. And that continues an uneven trend of uh, long-term fluctuations, which began in the 1970s, really, and which has led to a severe loss of confidence in, uh, in America's social and economic prospects. That loss of confidence is focused very heavily on the nature of America and on American institutions and attitudes. And critics look very critically and nostalgically to a presumed golden age in the past and the prospect of regaining that golden age. Uh, it's a move <coughs> deployed by all, stat- all politicians and has recently been satirised by the comedian Stephen Colbert in a book, the title which you may be familiar with, America Again re-becoming the greatness we never weren't. Mm. (laughs) In practice, much of the discourse uh, in this field is about the role of institutions or the corruption of institutions as determinants of America's economic performance. (coughs) If we take two divergent narratives or institutional models of economic performance, uh, at the extreme... One view argues that the historical bases of prosperity are individualism, frontier spirit, free markets, self-reliance, private enterprise, all uncluttered by state intervention or high taxation or enfeebling welfare payments. And on this view, decline flows from the frustration of these motors of progress. The other institutional model assumes that growth and the common good are best achieved through communal and government efforts, needed in order to improve material infrastructure, health, welfare, education, and to curb market abuses and inequality. And on this view, poor economic performance is largely explained by unregulated private enterprise and by markets sending distorting signals and offering irrational and socially harmful rewards uh, to entrepreneurs. And continuing this oversimplification, I think we might categorize these or think of them as the John Wayne model and the Jimmy Stewart model of the origins of economic growth. That's a true grit versus it's a wonderful life, if you're familiar with these films. But in reality, the role of institutions in economic life isn't at all straightforward. Both the character of institutions and the circumstances in which they operate change greatly over time. The role of institutions is therefore not timeless. It's mutable. First, it's not always clear whether uh, particular institutional arrangements and attitudes are exogenous or endogenous, that is to say, whether they flow from or the determinants of or the products, uh, the causes or the symptoms of economic performance. If you take two examples, uh, were frontier individualism and self-reliant enterprise products of or stimuli of, develop- of the development of the American West? Alternatively, did the growth of large-scale industry in the United States depend upon or produce uh, crucially important intermediate financial institutions so that institutions can be effects as well as causes depending on the setting in which they operate. And the second problem that uh, I start with about the role of institutions is that they can survive well beyond the state of development in which they initially reflected needs and therefore they can change their impact. That's my general theme. That institutions don't exercise unchanging influences in different settings or in different periods. They can change their nature and produce radically different consequences. Over time, they may become hindrances. Advantages may become hindrances. Yesterday's solutions may become today's problems. Heroes can become villains, and villains can become heroes. Well, that's all pretty general. Let me come to some more specific, uh, specific examples. A rather arcane example is probably the patent system, very specialised. Patents were devised primarily to protect innovation and manufacturing, uh, but they're now widely used in the software industry. And there, exclusive protection by patents has been extended from material things and physical processes to software concepts and even software ideas. It's as if they're patenting ideas rather than production Uh, uh, mechanisms. As a result, software patents offer considerable potential for restricting markets and blighting innovation. They can handicap people who develop products on the basis of conceptual ideas independently of the patent holder. They become significant competitive weapons. So the complex legal battle between Apple and Samsung, which is still underway in the courts, and the expenditure of two million pounds, two million dollars over two years on patent litigation and, and patent purchase in the smartphone industry are examples of this. But I want also to move on to the core of what I want to say, a uh, much less uh, specialised example of the functional transition of an institution, namely the changing econo- economic role of a familiar and overwhelmingly important institution, the business corporation. Modern corporations evolved obviously to facilitate the pooling of capital to achieve scale and the pursuit of technical and organizational economies, One result was an increase in their average size to the point at which corporations can reshape markets in ways which diverge from the conventional idea of free competition and the autonomous consumer. I don't have much time to go into that. But they also embody a new structure of ownership and control and that's what I want to talk about. Corporations attracted investments from people other than their directors or their managers. And as a result, since the the, the number of shareholders were large and the average holdings are small, the control of corporations slipped away almost from the the, the late 19th century. I think I'm going to have to ask uh, Abner to give me a glass of water as some sort of reward for going first. (laughs) 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 Uh, the control of corporations slipped away from their boards of directors, uh, from, their, from their owners into the hands of the boards of directors. Mostly, uh, the directors, had, thank you, having only very modest shareholding. <coughs> that happened very generally in the late 19th century but became apparent in the 1930s with a classic book by Berlin Means called The Modern Corporation and Private Property. The resulting divorce of ownership from control was intensified with the fact that management, not merely the boards of directors, was increasingly professionalised and specialised. So parallel to the divorce of control from ownership was a divorce of the responsibility for decision-making from a liability to bear the principal money costs of failure. This combination of diffuse shareholding and specialist executive decision-making changed the nature, location and responsibility for economic decisions on risk. In other words... An institutional effect, the corporation, became an institutional cause. It it intervened. In the corporate economy, managers who take decisions that can involve great risks do not necessarily bear personal financial liability for the outcome of those risks. Instead, the people who bear the costs of error are investors, but only to the extent of their shareholding, which might be small, and also creditors, customers and in many circumstances, sometimes dramatically, the public and the economic system at at large. Obviously, the most recent example, which is where I come almost to the topic that I was asked to talk about, the most recent example of a significant fallout from this institutional evolution of the corporation occurred in the financial sector. Banks originally functioned as channels to provide credit credit or investment in business activity. But in time, their command of huge liquid resources meant that they could also see profit from moving money around. And this, too, was money that the managers did not themselves own and do not themselves own. So the people who take decisions about vast sums do not bear the concomitant risk of loss of those funds. So there's a potential divergence in the financial community. Uh, interest not only between bank executives and their shareholders but between bankers and their depositors which is why governments intervene and try to ensure deposits, (coughs) between bankers and the rest of the financial sector especially those who invest in their their products and in the last resort as Alaska lastly witnessed some years ago between bankers and the community at large through the possibility of financial crises. So in sum in addition to their role as conduits for business investment Financial institutions pursue the sort of speculative activity that might impose costs on others and restrict <coughs> or even undermine the operations of the entire economy and that was recognized in the 1930s and before but specifically 1930s and led the uh, led the state in the United States to uh, produce federal insurance the deposit insurance to separate investment from retail banking and to restrict the interest that could be paid on deposits by the so-called savings and loans associations or thrifts, who took deposits, were professionally managed, and were liable to speculate with the, with the monies that they secured from, from savers who deposited with them. But that regulatory system, we're coming now to, to the modern period, began to crumble in the 1980s. First, the savings and loan associations pressed successfully for <coughs> the relaxation of deposit-taking restrictions with disastrous results since they used the funds deposited, which were protected by federal insurance as far as the deposit was concerned, uh, deposited for commercial speculation. (coughs) And that cost the taxpayer a whopping $210 billion uh, bailout in 1989 when the savings and loan associations began to collapse because of their speculative activities. No lessons were learned and lobbying by banks and allied institutions secured even wider financial deregulation between the late 1980s and 2000. Retail banks were allowed to undertake investment banking, (laughs) mergers, branch, branch, banking, and interstate operations were facilitated, financial institutions were allowed to combine banking, dealing in securities and insurance, and financial derivatives were exempted from regulation. So the managers of banks and other financial houses were now free to transform their institutions into dealers in loans and debts and paper without any commensurate risk to themselves individually. In the process, they were increasingly removed from their presumed core function of facilitating investment and contributing directly to productive economic activity. The resulting disasters uh, are only too familiar uh, with the collapse of the financial crisis and collapse of 07 08. Such deregulation was presented, at least until the disaster occurred, as a good thing. It was thought to contribute to the beneficial reinforcement of America's enduring institutions. Market competition, individual aspiration, relative freedom from state and vengeance. (coughs) It keyed into one of the narratives that I talked about at at the outset. But as we know, the reality was very different. Specialist banks were joined by very lightly regulated money market funds, Finance and insurance companies, hedge funds and the like, and together they undertook extremely high-risk activity in which assets and liabilities were, were, were poorly protected and badly matched. Uh, trading in derivatives grew in total amount from $106 trillion, <coughs> trillion dollars in 2001 to $531 trillion in 2008. And when the bubble burst, which it did in 2008, it almost brought down not only the American (coughs) but the global economy significantly only a reversal of institutional ideology prevented immediate disaster, that reversal was embodied in President Bush's troubled assets program, troubled assets relief program and in Obama's stimulus program, each of them disposing of over 700 billion of dollars even so, business and economic activity have suffered (coughs) intensely as has the public at large Uh, there's been an attempt more recently in a very complicated and unpredictable way to reintroduce regulation uh, in in the so-called Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2010, but it's really too early to tell how it's going to operate. In effect, the full effects of the crash of 2008 are still working out, Mm -hmm. as the implications of the very complicated regulatory mechanisms introduced by that act uh, uh, are still to be discovered. But the proximate cause of the the crash, and therefore in the last resort of, uh, of much of the unhappiness in the American economy, are, I think, reasonably clear. The executives of banks and allied institutions have managed not only to change the function of their companies and increase risks to an enormous extent, but to transfer them elsewhere, and most critically, transfer them to society at large. In effect, the banking system had evolved from an apparently benign economic institution into a threat to economic development. Now, uh, finance is perhaps the most extreme, but not the only example of what I want to talk about. That is the functional transformation of institutions. One other might be, going to have to work that out, the structure of private health insurance as the economics of health provision change. So the arrangements of health insurance which were relative strength beginning the beginning become more and more onerous and with in terms of their effects on the economics <coughs> of health, and also the consequences another example so egregious that even the economist has moved to urge social reform it's a measure of how scandalous it might be is the grossly unequal distribution of incomes and wealth in America and elsewhere too in America the facts are fairly familiar let me take three briefly between 1980 and 2005, more than four fifths of the total increase in American incomes went to the richest 1% of the population. In the last 30 years, the proportion of American national income going to the top 100th of 1%, 0.01 of families, has risen from 1% of national income to almost 5%. And the top 5% of the uh, of income earners, uh, receive about 36% of the national income. And finally, in 1980, the chief executive officers of the largest American companies earned an average of 42 times as much as the average worker. In 2010, that figure had risen from 42 times to 531 times. Among the causes of of this degree of inequality were obviously... Successful rent-seeking through the acquisition of privilege, favourable legislation, concealed subsidies for the wealthy, corporate power in the determination of top pay. A distorted tax system, very liberal mortgage interest relief and the maintenance of privilege generally. So here, too, we encounter another possible institutional transformation. How did it work? That is, inequality can in principle and no doubt historically did, generate effective rewards for entrepreneurial activity and incentives to enterprise and healthy levels of private investment. But now it may have reached such an extreme stage that it's divorced from its positive functional purposes. It's now possibly inefficient and deleterious for growth by reducing educational, social and economic opportunity and with them productive performance, as well as generating disaffection. Another and more obvious example of what I'm talking about is the transformation of the influence of institutions from an effect of the cause in the role and structure of America's government itself. The constitution was in part designed to protect the interests of the individual states, for example through the composition of the Senate, and to disperse central authority to the separation of powers. Consequently, it restricted the role of central government, and that seemed appropriate in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. But in spite of some adaptations, the resulting institutions and attitudes survive, and have survived, in their strong forms into the 20th and 21st centuries, when the necessities of political economy, it could be argued, are quite different. As a result, social and economic policy have become much more difficult to advance, and other institutional reforms are seriously impeded. Although that's not a unanimous view, as we may see on the 6th of November. In the global perspective, of course, the slow adaptation of institutions is far from a purely American problem. But it seems to be given a peculiar salience in the American setting. Why? Because I think of the heightened sense of history there in, on, on, on this topic, the accompanying commitment to cherished institutions and values, and a deep belief in their distinctiveness and the hazards of a reforming state. Indeed, America's commitment to its institutions and their future occasionally verges on the highly personal, even the quasi-religious. It's a point captured from a quite different perspective by Scott Fitzgerald in the nomic ending of The Great Gatsby, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. If so, you will remember that the narrator there compares Jay Gatsby's personal aspirations with the wonder of continental discovery and hope. But he, or Scott Fitzgerald, argues that what Gatsby did not know was that the dream was already behind him, somewhere in the vast obscurity beyond the city where the dark green fields of the Republic rolled on under the night? Gatsby be believed in the green light, the orgiastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our harm, arms further. And one fine morning, so we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly. Into the past. At, 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 a much, at a more serious perhaps level, what follows if the issues that I've discussed uh, are indeed serious and need to be tackled? Well, it probably means being much more skeptical about appeals to American exceptionalism and to timeless moral values and in institutions mm-hmm. and focusing on a constant readiness to reform traditional <coughs> institutions in light of changing circumstances constant reform, a willingness to reconsider institutions. And that's very, very difficult, since it would mean abandoning some central cultural beliefs about America's distinctiveness, about its individualism, and about the state. And by the same token, perhaps even more importantly, underlying this, it would involve a large shift in the balance of power between different interest groups. We should probably be pessimistic on that score, but even so, I think it's worth contemplating a more positive scenario, just for a moment. Although the difficulties I've touched on may be exaggerated, especially in the heat of a presidential campaign, history does suggest the possibility of change. If we take the case of the developmental state, a development economic role for the state, rather than an emergency role, in spite of a powerful contrary ideology, American history has many examples of extensive state intervention in the distribution of public land, to encourage railway construction and agricultural settlement in the 19th century, in the far-reaching structural initiatives of the federal government in the 1930s, and in the encouragement of research and development, major scientific initiatives, and the funding of a network of interstate highways in the post-war years. Indeed, looked at in the round, abandoning beliefs about historical institutions, although relatively rare, is occasionally almost as consistent with American historical experience as unchanging tradition. In de Tocqueville's well-known phrase, the greatness of America lies not in being more enlightened than any other nation, but rather in her ability to repair her faults. And in this respect, we must look to other and perhaps larger narratives in the history of American institutions and attitudes than those I've mentioned. They are the much less tangible, but no less important themes of youthfulness and promise, political will and experiment. Admittedly, it might need extraordinary crises to bring them out, but they too have at least intermittently played institutional roles in the commendable pursuit of the American economic dream, in the historical rootedness of its buoyant hopes, and encountering its harsh disappointments. The point is that just as decline, declinism, is not new, so institutional adaptations, the repairing faults, are not without precedent. American society and its economy do indeed contain resources, Confidence, potential, resilience, all institutions in their way that can be called upon to counter the system's vulnerability. If we combine this with the long-run record of performance, it may well be that Adam Smith was right. The kaleidoscope of American economic history may yet confirm, after however painful a process, that there is indeed a great deal of ruin in the nation. Thank you.
2: period of pessimism. So this is the beginning, uh, this is a famous portrait, famous picture by Margaret Bourke-White uh, from 1936. The world's highest standard of living, there's no way like uh, the American way. Is that the right? Yes? No way like the American way. Uh, and that picture I think indicates a cognitive challenge. Uh, and the cognitive challenge is a conflict between what people experience and what they believe. The belief is it 's been mentioned American exceptionism, which consists of high income per head and world leadership. The reality is stagnating standard of living uh, and declining world standing. This uh, psychologist call this cognitive dissonance, uh, and the symptoms are denial, intransigence, violence fear and loathing. So what are we talking about? Uh, Difference between expectations and reality. Uh, This is world life expectation. Every dot here is a country. The blue curve is 1980. And uh, the pink curve is 2000. And it's scaled here. This is life expectation. And it's scaled here as a percentage of the United States. So it's very easy to locate the United States. It's here. So you can see several things here. One is that the United States tend to be below the regression line. So it performs less well, uh, according to its wealth, than other countries. Now, if you compare the United States, now, if you look at the increase in life expectation between 1980 and 2000, it's smaller in the States than the average increase everywhere. Uh, If you look at the United States in 2000 you can see that even in 1980 there are countries which were maybe 40 percent as wealthy as the United States which have a high life expectation. This is kind of one reality check. Here's another reality check also life expect there's no wealth but life says Ruskin you know so uh, here's another reality check. this is a curve of life expectation in years against health expenditure per head. And these are 19 other rich countries and they spend a little more, but they get a lot of life expectation. The United States spends a lot more and gets less increase in life expectation. Here's a third one. This is earning median earnings of people aged 25, 64. Uh, this is, it starts in 1970. This is men at work and this is all men. And you can see that there's no change over the last 40 years. Uh, women are increasing that's not because of greater equality, that's because they're working longer hours that's all there is to it uh, so really for the median person, the person of whom there are uh, half as many people above as they are, no the same number above as they are below, there's really no change in their uh, uh, real income and here's a final one, these are where the United States ranks, i have distilled this from a very long list. Uh, various indicators of leisure and income, number 27. Income inequality, number 28. Health, number 28. Divorce, I'm not sure divorce isn't always a bad thing, but nevertheless. <laughs> number 26. Child poverty, number tw- rank 25. Working hours, for year, 22. Education, 18. So, no signs of world leadership there. Uh, American greatness, uh, well, there are two standard stories about American greatness. This is the story that economists tell, uh, that it's a consequence of property rights and Yankee ingenuity. So this is a standard way that economists approach growth. This is a a growth model. Uh, The D is the delta, the increment, yes? So an annual increment of income, national income, think of it, is a result of the annual increment of the labor invested and the capital invested, but that only explains about half the increase. So when we look at the residual we say, what does that, what causes the rest of it? We say technology. That's a standard story uh, that's been told. But in the last decade another story has emerged. And that's the bounty of nature story. So uh, I think the first important statement about this came from gave it right, but uh, there's been a new version of this which is, again, uh, the increment of income is driven by the increment of capital plus the increment of labor plus the increment of energy in this case, net energy, the energy that's doing the work and here's a graph that shows this so the thick curve is simply empirical GDP These are various measures of energy, but the one that fits best is net energy. And you can see that the fit is almost perfect for most of the time. Uh, This is a computer revolution that does seem to have a bit of an impact, but it's really quite a compelling story. Uh, And there's another thought, which is that perhaps there's some relationship between energy and technology, because what is all this technology about? It is about making better use of energy. If you think of all the main innovations, uh, they're mainly to do with uh, improving the efficiency of energy So think of electricity, think of the motor car, and so on. But without the energy, energy saving—without the energy, there'd be nothing to save, uh, essentially. Uh, another element which uh, Barry's alluded to—I'll state it a little differently—is this central idea in United States culture, I suppose. The market is a kind of state of nature. Uh, And this is underpinned by a theory. And the theory says that uh, if you combine self-interest with the miracle of the invisible hand, then you get prosperity or the American dream uh, or whatever. These are the necessary ingredients. Uh, And this is rooted in American (coughs) traditions and culture quite independently of the endorsement it has from neoclassical theory, which is a a later development. But is this theory true? It's a statement about the world, but is the world really like that? Is it valid? Maybe it's true only for particular times in history. Maybe it is historically contingent. Uh, And maybe we're going through a period of diminishing returns, both to nature and to innovation. Now, if the theory is invalid, then a policy that is based on it is misguided, is not likely to result in the desired objectives. Uh, it gives rise to a mismatch between reality and belief. We've seen quite a lot of that in the 20th century. The Soviet Union, yes, Soviet Union was uh, a regime which is operating on false premises and eventually it collapsed but for a long time it didn't collapse so you could say it was protected by the bounty of nature and maybe some of these uh, uh, you know that wonderful quote from Gatsby from the great Gatsby stands for the bounty of nature Mm -hmm. uh, which provides some buffer, some protection Uh, but maybe only so far Uh, so I've suggested that a crunch has started And Barry mentioned the crunch in a slightly different way. And one reaction to the crunch has been that capitalists uh, learn to act like an economic class. And they start to maneuver to capture uh, the intellectual heights, the political heights, the economic high ground. Since the 1970s, there's been a definite movement, organized movement in that direction. You know, the think tanks, the well-regimented uh, Republican Party, uh, the deregulation reforms in taxation, all of these things. Uh, and this is well illustrated here, the consequences of this. This is the rise in productivity, chartered the rise in productivity, and this is the rise in hourly compensation. So there's a break around 1970 where hourly compensation fails to follow uh, the rise in productivity. Rise in productivity is appropriated not by the workers. Uh, This is another one which compares growth in real GDP uh, and real median household income and once again you can see that the people in the middle have not shared in whatever prosperity increase there has been. Income is rising fastest at the top. Uh, So this is the bottom 90%. This is the uh, annual increment that they've enjoyed much of the time it's actually been negative negative. and the people at the top you know this is just a graph of the figures that Barry gave us here in his talk. I said uh, the capitalists have begun to act like a class but perhaps not enough of a ruling class uh, not Uh, taking responsibility, the responsibility of ruling and governance, which a ruling class should take, because the underlying ideology is essentially each to his own. And there seems to be a kind of centrist paribus assumption, other things being equal. In other words, I do my thing, and everything else will stay the same. Uh, That is, uh, this is underpinned by doctrines of rational choice which spread into the social sciences, most of the elites were trained at university, by this time have studied these things at university, Uh, and the idea here is that the only important thing is the promotion of self-interest, with no regard for systemic consequences. The systemic consequences will be taken care of by the invisible hand. Uh, and the result of this has been a set of systemic breakdowns, first the financial crisis, uh, which arises directly from, uh, from this, but also climate change and the energy crunch, both of them exemplify uh, this mismatch between personal objectives and social ones. Uh, then another uh, strand of this is the corporate reach for public revenue. So corporations are jealous of all this gu- all this money that's flowing to the government and think that they should have more of it. Uh, and here's this uh, quest has led to another set of disasters, first in public finance, which is related, of course, to the financial crisis, but also healthcare, aging, that's pensions, education, housing, I won't go into the details. Those who follow the United States will know what I'm talking about. Uh, So how do you deal with this? One way of dealing with this is to postpone the reckoning by taking on debt, borrowing from the future, and this is uh, various measures of debt. Uh, What is interesting is that the debt that has increased least is the one that's talked about most, which is the government debt, uh, in black here. The one that has increased the most is financial debt, and this is overall uh, debt as a percentage of GDP. But this strategy delivers diminishing returns. So the next graph shows us uh, the GDP return to an additional increment of debt. This is uh, GDP on debt. And you can see that uh, a dollar of debt produces uh, 0.9 of uh, GDP growth at the beginning of the period, which is 1966, and by now, the return is negative. Uh, There's a whole set of other reactions. So, the first reaction, this is a classic cognitive dissonance reaction, is denial. Uh, America is the most religious of industrialized countries and has exotic manifestations of faith. Uh, The rejections of science and reason in public discourse political passivity and also this uh, voluntarism uh, this belief in will in the power of will this Ayn Randish pursuit of freedom uh, as a kind of Nietzschean uh, subtext of the culture uh, and manifested perhaps by characters like jonah Plummer uh, Don't Spread the Wealth uh, you know that's that, that's what he objected to when confronted by Obama in um, in the previous election, uh, and this voluntarism remains strong in American life. So here we are. Are you likely to be a millionaire by 2021? This was asked last last year. So 21 percent of Americans thought that they're likely to be millionaires, and only 8 percent of Brits. I suppose a test for this is not whether this is a reasonable expectation but how many of those who thought they were likely to be millionaires in 2011 will actually be millionaires in 2021? Uh, another response uh, to frustration is violence. Guns and homicide, this is where America does lead the world. Uh, indeterminate detention The constant war that is going on, uh, torture, and the prison empire, again, American leadership in penal incarceration, well above any other advanced country uh, in the world. Here's a view of one outpost of the American Gulag. And there's something else uh, which is uh, emerging which is this sense of a looming emergency. Sorry, can I get this on again? It's a looming emergency. To me, this is very interesting. This went around the blogosphere a bit. So, uh, the Department of Homeland Security has by now purchased uh, 1.2 billion rounds of ammunition. Uh, That's uh, four bullets for every American man, woman and child. Now, what do they want it for? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but it is a bit alarming. Uh, and then there's war. So America, we're told by pundits that America should stop exercising hard power and should exercise more soft power. But What does this hard power consist of? Well, there's these familiar images, high explosive of various kinds, remote delivery, missiles, aircraft carriers, submarine, uh, tanks, fighters, all of this stuff. And this gives a great sense of security but is based on another cognitive mismatch. It's a basic mistake, uh, which is the confusion of input and output. Because it costs so much, the idea is that somehow the cost of defense delivers an equivalent value in terms of the security Uh, well there are countervailing forces that don't take this view Uh, so they have found the weaknesses in this strategy uh, and this is the asymmetric warfare in which very modest weapons uh, are actually quite effective against this Uh, against this security superpower. And the trick they found is simply to present a target that is too small for hard power. So hard power operates by delivering high-explosive precisely to remote distances, but if you're too small to uh, target, then you can fight back. Are these people an existential threat? I won't answer this question, I'll just leave it on the table. Uh, Okay, I have answered the question. So (laughs) what's the problem about about this? Uh, And we go back to the kind of Central American myth of freestanding individualism. This is a painting by Norman Rockwell, uh, Homecoming G.I. from 1946. And it tells us what the problem is with American defense doctrine. The problem is that if you are running a consumerist liberal state, why should any consumer, how much do you have to pay someone to get themselves killed in the service of their country? It's a nonsensical question, and it's a very difficult one to answer. So, America has come up with solutions to this. One is having a professional army. This is after the debacle of Vietnam. But you know, professionals have no more incentive to get themselves killed in fact, they have less incentive to get themselves <laughs> killed than ordinary citizens because they're only, they're only doing it for the money, not for anything else. Uh, but very recently, we've come across uh, a new solution to this problem, and these are these drones. So with drones, you don't need boots on the ground anymore. Uh, you know, you, No one needs to risk their lives. Uh, so this would seem to be the solution. It's actually quite an effective Instrument, However, this also has inherent problems. So, overhead tomorrow. Well, drones are not that difficult to make. So here's an Iranian drone. Uh, and here's a police drone. So, you know, over your neighborhood cinema tomorrow maybe. Uh, and all of this, all of this miasma has given rise to Literature, which I follow almost daily, uh, and which I think is of remarkably high quality—a uh, literature of foreboding—I can't think of anyone in the UK who writes at this level. The only person I think who operates uh, with this quality is uh, John Gray, who's from from here. But maybe that's about right, you know, because America is six times as big as. UK, so they have six top people that I follow. So one is Dmitry Olov, uh, who compares, he's a Russian, so he knows about Russian collapse. So he says, America is just going through the process that Russia went through uh, originally. Only America, if Russia Russia's collapse was like falling out of the first out of the ground floor window, windows, America's collapse is going to be like out of the skyscraper window. James Howard Kunzler, each one of these people has their own own, uh, specialization or story. So he focuses on the effect of the energy crunch on American urban layout and how difficult it would be to sustain. Chris Hedges talks about uh, the erosion of liberties, the erosion of Uh, freedoms. Paul Greg Roberts, very interesting, so he was a Reagan treasury official and he seems to have moved to the other side, rather like John Gray actually, Uh, and he focuses on the lawlessness of uh, the American state today. Robert Gordon, an economist, has published an interesting paper recently saying that maybe economic growth as we knew it in the past is not going to go on uh, in the future. And there's another group of foreboders, or maybe I should call them backboders. These are the Tea Party. So this is a kind of reverse foreboding. It's all happened already, uh, in a way. But I think they also contribute to this brooding over where things are going. But uh, to end on that term with the alien to the American spirit, so like Barry, I feel compelled to <laughs> I feel compelled to produce an uplift. <laughs> so the first uplift is this in this great American tradition of the techno Uh we'll find something will turn up. So uh one is resource intensification. So we're going to uh, we're running out of resources so let's get more of them uh, as quickly as possible the other is a gas boom this is a, a genuine windfall what people don't quite notice is that it's actually more expensive to get out of the ground and now there's too much of it so the price is too low in order to pay the cost of getting it out of the ground uh, then there's green infrastructure and energy how realistic this is uh, I won't go into maybe the discussion and finally this the, uh, the possibility of fusion uh, if we discover fusion all these problems are going to be solved and we're going to have a whole set of new problems but uh, there's this vision of limitless energy uh, it'll, it's always around the corner 50 years around the corner uh, but you know I think that of all the possibilities, this is the most realistic one. So, if the probability now is rather low, the more years you have, the cumulative probability increases, and so maybe this will happen. Uh, And this will banish these particular blues, and perhaps give rise to some new blues. Uh, Then there's Ray Kurzweil. So he's a great optimist. Uh, He's a kind of hyper, Optimist, a techno-optimist, and his great idea is that we are riding an exponential growth of knowledge which will take us into entirely new territory, which he calls a singularity, uh, and will maybe allow us to settle in alien territories of various kinds uh, and extend our life expectations infinitely, and so on and so forth. Uh, is this a thing to look forward to or is this a thing to apprehend I'm not entirely sure but you can see some of the downsides of this vision which I won't spell out so as not to spoil the mood Uh, what (laughs) what all of this has in common what this whole talk has been had in common is that current reality is not very palatable it's not very comfortable. To look at. And I'm not immune to this bafflement myself. You know, I don't think you might have heard a certain amount of uh, uh, smart alecking here, but I'm pretty baffled by the situation there myself. And for me, the biggest puzzle is what's the matter with Kansas? Those of you who are plugged in will know what that problem is. Uh, so, why are people voting the way they're voting? Why is the race? so tight. It's a big mystery to me, but then I'm not a professional Americanist. Uh, so whoever wins the election, I think, faces this cognitive dissonance of economic stagnation, collective and private frustration, unreason, intransigence, and possibly violence. Thank you. <laughs>